Bhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Sangam Namasami Venerable Lung Paul, Venerable Bhikkhus and Bhikkhunis, uh, seminaries and Anagarika, lay people, men and women, brothers and sisters. This is the end of the first full day of practice at Spirit Rock. Uh, Spirit Rock is a spiritual rock and we are all also becoming spiritual rocks, strengthening ourselves to be still like stones, but not hard, just enduring. The first day of practice requires quite a lot of patience. Think about that rock out there. I first saw it about 25 years ago when there was nothing here but and it's still sitting there bearing witness to all this wonderful development which is a good image for us as practitioners of the Dhamma to remind ourselves that the cultivation of the path takes time and it takes an inordinate amount of patience. So becoming still after being busy in the world, the first day, the aches and pains, getting used to the schedule, having given up all the comforts and delights of uh, worldly occupations, and gathering together here We're just beginning, really. And before we know it, it'll be ending. But to savor the beginnings and endings, savor every moment, and have the strength of heart to bring up that image of the still spiritual rock that can just be with conditions and observe and investigate, understand, learn, study ourselves. A couple of us here are from Canada. We don't have many samanas in our midst, particularly female ones. I have a great gladness of heart to see ten other female samanas 
we are in the presence of the fourfold assembly. We are, all of us, part of this fourfold assembly, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, laymen and laywomen. And this is what the Buddha established in his dispensation, uh, four kinds of spiritual warriors. And we have, we have, we're all given the same tools um, in slightly more intense forms. But the path is inclining us in the same direction. And the direction is towards emptying, emptying, purifying, clearing out, and realizing the truth that will free us from all the sufferings of life, of this world. When I first came on this path as a monastic, many people asked me what I was doing. And I said, as I'm sure many of you have been asked, what are you doing when you meditate? What are you doing in this path, in this training? And I would say, I'm trying to free myself from suffering. And the common answer is, what suffering? Because many people, uh, busy in the world, preoccupied with worldly things, don't see that there's any, any suffering. It's all so captivating, fascinating, in, intoxicating, enthralling. And there's so much to get. But they don't see the loss, they don't see the downfall or the danger of that fascination, intoxication, preoccupation with worldly pursuits. And so when we come together like this, we're taking a stand to understand more deeply what is the way to safety? What is the way to stillness? How to cultivate it and develop it? To grow in the Master's way as we chanted today, grow in the Master's way. And to be able to do that, we have to be able to first empty ourselves of a lot of ideas, concepts, expectations, to really come and sit in a spiritual way, is to be very, very pure. But that takes a bit of work. This is preparation. Every time we sit down, we have to first prepare the ground so that our minds can see more clearly. And preparing the ground when the retreat starts is a lot of adjustment. But before we even got here, the staff of Spirit Rock have been so busy preparing the ground for us, clearing the grounds, sweeping the hall, setting up the mats, organizing the kitchen, so many tasks, so many logistics, countless emails. What a great generosity 
that preceded our arrival. So we come into this space made sacred by their kind and loving effort and taking care of it while we're here. The enormous pots boiling in the kitchen and things being taken care of to protect the space. All this energy inclines already towards Nibbana. Because of a love of this teaching and a love of the practice and a taste of what the Dhamma can do for us. Before we even sit down, before we even enter the hall, there is a field of goodness that has been worked, plowed a little bit. And then we sit within that field of goodness and we continue plowing, giving the generosity of our intention, of our time, of our care, of our devotion to the Triple Gem, to take refuge in this, as difficult as it gets. For most of us, it's much more than nine or ten days. And certainly for some of us, we have, as we chanted these words, I dedicate my body and life. It's about dedicating body and life, our body and mind, body and heart, to cultivate a path, a true path that can only lead in one direction, to freedom from the dangers and the downfall of the hindrances in the mind. We're doing the same work that was done preceding our arrival here. We're clearing the ground so that we can explore and investigate the right pasture, the right field, the field of awareness, of reality. And that's, that is already the cultivation of dana-sila, generosity of attention, not only generosity of our energy, coming here, making time in our lives to devote ourselves to the practice wholeheartedly without knowing who'd be here, what the conditions might be like. It's never perfect. But isn't that good? Because if it were perfect, what challenge would there be? And the perfection can't last. There is no perfection in samsara. So to have imperfect conditions, they're so minor, like ravens pecking at the windows in the clear story. They want to know, what are you doing? This is a good sign, the samana sanya that they get. The next life, they'll be sitting in here, possibly. In our hermitage in eastern Canada, we see a lot of creatures that come and go, besides the humans that come and go. We found a dead bear on our property. We watched him decomposing. It was a very good practice to observe the coming and going of this 
enormous creature who, after all, is the real inhabitant of that place. We're just visitors. But the bears and coyotes and raccoons and such like, it's their land. And to see one of them was really a privilege to be able to observe the death and decay and see how nature took back every piece. Even the hair disappeared. After a few months, all you could see was the indent of where he had been lying. It was a young bear, about three years old. We see many creatures die there, porcupines, dead birds. Maybe they came to die in the monastery because they're coming closer to the Dhamma, wishing them well and feeling the privilege of sharing in their life and death. And so it is with each other. We think that when we live not with our minds inclined towards Dhamma, but just caught up in the delights of the world, we don't think about death and dying and about the transience of this life, the impermanence of it. But when we live close to the Dhamma, in the Dhamma, practicing and cultivating the path, we begin to appreciate that we're all just passing through and seeing that we're brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. It becomes much more apparent as the years go by when we're young We don't see old age, sickness, and death. And then if we don't come to that realization through Dhamma practice, it's almost as if nature was designed to give us this sanya, this perception of impermanence, by seeing it in our own bodies. And that's a heavenly messenger, to be able to see the way the body decays, not just in the creatures around us, but in our own physical being, seeing the senses fade, seeing loss of the loved, seeing the ability to do things deteriorate. And the world doesn't value that. But on this path, we can see the value in observing the ending of things the disappearance, the impermanence, the dukkha, the suffering. Because right there arises the first of the noble truths. Where else do we have to look for it but in our own bodies and hearts? So when we come here together, we come, I look in the room and there are people here of all ages, of the older ages, old enough to sit, and explore probably 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and more, maybe. And that's a wonderful thing because it's the whole panoply of human possibility sitting in this hall and bearing witness. We don't know how old we are if we think in terms of lifetimes and how many times we've been circling in samsara. Some of us have been recycled a few times. And we have no idea what's next. But what we do know 
is that if we cultivate this path, there is a possibility for freedom from this cycle of birth and death, birth and death. It is possible. And it's very inspiring to see the unwavering effort being applied here by old yogis, practitioners that I have a sense have been coming here for many, many years, coming on retreats for long years, coming back to the practice again and again. Because that's the kind of effort that we need to apply, not just to get through the discomforts of the first day. This is a tiny little patient endurance. What we really need is to cultivate the patience to carry this effort to its consummation, to the culmination of the path, not just for a few days so that we can experience blissful mind states and some relief from the exhaustion and stress of our daily lives. And the beauty of that kind of patience is that it gives us the ability to endure in the the direction of that which holds us. An endurance and an, an openness to accept things the way they really are and not the way the delusion of habitual thought and lifetimes of programming have led us to believe in, to take refuge in. Old mental habits and conditioning that are a prison. And that's the greatest hindrance, the greatest burden of our life is just that, the mental conditioning. To have the patience to grow more and more still long enough that we develop clarity and confidence in this path. So that even if we have to go through those early days of sore knees and drooping bodies and feeling hopeless, and then suddenly, after three or four days, we start to feel it all, feel the strength again, the wakefulness, the clarity, the falling away of the hindrances little by little, and the path rising up to hold us. The mind settling and calming and concentrating, the energy becoming uh, less willful and more natural, more holistic and organic. And then the strength of this kind of community of dedicated practitioners leaning towards, together, towards this magnificent refuge in what is true, in what is enduring, in what is freeing, in what is illuminating in what awakens us, rather than being caught in what leads to disappointment, defilement, danger, decay, destruction, destruction of even the goodness in us. How easily the mind gets trapped when we go back into the world. How easy it is to get caught up in forms, in perceptions, in feelings, in sensations, in all the sensory 
presentations that the world has to offer. And they're becoming more and more exotic, irresistible, except for those who know better. So what we're doing here creates not just a field of goodness, a field of merit, but a mountain, an ocean of incredible strength and power that will give us the resilience to resist what we have to go back to. We can't live here in this little sanctuary. We have to go back and take up our responsibilities, whether it's in our monasteries or in our homes after leaving here, and continue this practice using what we've developed as a refuge and as a reference point to remember what truly supports us. Whether we live in a condo or in a little vihara somewhere, in a hut on a mountain, or two up and two down urban suburb, to understand where we can turn when we're caught up. So taking stock of what we're doing when we become impatient, when we can't bear the soreness, the numbness, the onslaught of mental phenomena that drag us away from the present moment, the relentless distractions that our minds are habituated to. But here we have the tools that we're we're sharpening to cut off the heads of those defilements one by one. I remember once I went to visit a Christian monastery with one of the nuns in England. We were participating in their schedule and during one of the hymns, something in, in the chants was to cut off the heads of the babes of the enemy. It couldn't mean that. I thought this has to be some kind of symbology. And then I remembered the Buddha's way of wording it is cutting off the heads of the defilements. And then it made sense to me. It's just a different language. Because the defilements also have lots of children. And they appear in so many forms, cute forms, (laughs) endearing forms. And we chew on that, we bite it, we love it, we cuddle it, and we're comforted by it. But it's still delusion. It's still not true, not real, not right, not liberating. And leads to suffering, disappointment, more delusion, more entrapment. And then when we're trying to empty the heart, then we have all those other attachments that seem really mild and harmless coming back and trying to upset our samadhi or distract us from the goal. We have to develop that clear sati sampajanya, always being so aware of what is beneficial, what is suitable, what is beneficial. Not just with mindfulness by itself, but mindfulness and wisdom together. We're patient, heroic patients, 
radical patience, and we're renunciants. As soon as we pick up this practice with this level of intensity, we become real renunciants. You might think you're not renouncing anything, but just contemplate what you've given up to come here. Quite a lot. How many people in the world are able to give up to this extent, even for an hour, let alone for a week or more, or for a lifetime? That's the meaning of the robe. It is truly a precious vehicle to be able to take the vows of a mendicant and pursue them as a lifetime profession. As lay people too, we can pursue a great level of renunciation if we learn to renounce and keep precepts and then use satisampajanya not just here on retreat but in daily life as well to study moment by moment, day by day as our conditioning and habit mind keeps interfering and calling us back to worldly aims and values, taking refuge in our precepts, taking refuge in our commitment, being patient and compassionate with the habits and seeing the way through the jungle to the point of our true refuge so that we use what supports us to incline our hearts to Nibbana. But here we have a chance with a lot of obstacles removed. It's like a hothouse to strengthen us, not just so that we can enjoy ourselves here, but to enjoy that little bit of freedom and strength back out in the jungle of the world. So what is beneficial and what is suitable? To know the precepts are beneficial. And sati sampajanya. We look at what the causes of our suffering are and what will bring us to end our attachments. What will help us to reach that field of abiding in right view instead of wrong view? And what will help us to understand reality? These are the four satisampajanyas. Understanding reality means seeing the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and emptiness. Where is this self that we are constantly constructing and strengthening and reinforcing? Where is it? When we practice this path, of right view, right intention, right speech here being silent, right action, just keeping to the schedule, practicing mindfulness of every po- in every posture, moment by moment, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, eating, putting on our shoes, getting dressed, opening the window, opening a door, sitting down, stretching. Right livelihood, this is how we're spending our time, is we're developing the Noble Eightfold Path, seeing suffering and its origin, 
and its cessation, noble eightfold path, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Concentrating our energy with a dedicated patience. When we notice impatience, we see the results of impatience and we bring ourselves back to kanti, again and again. Noble Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, the Five Faculties, Sati Sampajanya, the Three Trainings, Sila Samadhi Panya, the Eight Precepts, Concentrating the Mind, using mindfulness as the gatekeeper, right attention, remembering to pay attention, and persevering in our effort, the four right efforts, cultivating what is wholesome, abandoning what is unwholesome, cultivating whatever is wholesome that has not yet arisen, bringing it up, sustaining what is wholesome, and whatever unwholesomeness has not arisen, restraining the senses so that it doesn't arise. Protection, protection. That's giving up. Giving up what we thought was good is actually not helpful. And then restraining, not allowing ourselves to go there. And what is the result of this training? Patient endurance and renunciation, gratitude, contentment, the mind strengthening, letting go a lot of garbage and emptying ourselves. Every moment that we empty out what is not beneficial, what is not suitable, what does not develop the factors of the path, every moment of starving the hindrances gives us another hold on the path, like the climber going up a mountain with ropes and all the equipment that we need. We do, we need a lot of special equipment because at great heights, the oxygen seems less. And sometimes the breath disappears altogether. But that's not a bad thing. We just have to adjust ourselves to those heights and not expect anything. But not be content to sit at the foot of the mountain and say, well, it must be really nice up there. But to keep going, to persevere. Because we can climb and develop greater and greater right view, greater and sharper right intention, so that we have the intention to renounce, the intention to give up greed and hatred, to develop harmlessness, to develop that loving kindness towards ourselves and all beings, compassion towards ourselves and all beings a joy towards ourselves and all beings, like such a rejoicing, such a benevolence to be here, to be doing this, such a grace, such a blessing. I say this to you not from not having struggled, not from not having gone hungry, not having 
been given food in my bowl. But I've been able to starve the hindrances enough to be fed by that. This is possible. By taking refuge, we know that the Buddha did never teach anything that we couldn't do, that couldn't be done. If it wasn't possible, he wouldn't have taught it. Because it is possible, it can be done. And I see, I see that after effort, a long, long effort, there's just so much joy of looking, at, even if there's nothing else but years and years of that effort, there comes such a joy of not giving up, of staying with it as hard as it is. Just keep going. Because we do, we do clear away the path, clearing the path. Even if we don't do it for ourselves, we do it for someone. Someone else will see and say, thank you so much for being there that day I was able to put food in your bowl. It gave me such happiness. And of course it gave me a lot of happiness too because I had food in my bowl for one more day to practice. And now, being here, you're all mendicants. You don't know what you're going to get. We're living on faith. These wonderful devas are down there in the kitchen every day cooking and filling the pots and feeding us day by day so that we can practice. That's really the sign of what it is to live as a human being on this planet. We don't know what we're going to get day by day. We think we know, but we don't know. I just found out today about the turning off of the Gulf current. But we don't have to be concerned about what might happen or might not happen. We just have to cultivate the path. That's what it means to dedicate our lives, to grow in the Master's way. It means we're not expecting something good, but the, the path is its own reward for however long life lasts, this is what we will do. Without expecting longer life, shorter life, but the quality of life. So even if the planet might be impermanent, the weather systems will change, the species of plants, the kind of clothing we have to use. You might have to be wearing parkas and boots here in California. And in Canada, we might have tropics. Who knows? But that doesn't matter. What matters is to be able to free our hearts from this samsara and to grow in loving kindness and compassion and wisdom. What we're sharing here is not just food and sacred space, breath, the mindfulness and the attention to the breath. We're living this teaching, this Dhamma. We're gaining strength from that. 
and growth on the Eightfold Noble Path, however imperceptible it might be to us, there's somebody sitting next to us that is getting strength from that. That's a gift. Taking joy in that. And the planet, whatever trouble it's in, is gaining from our wholesomeness, the cultivation of the good. We have never met some of us before. Some of us have met briefly. But we've all taken the same kind of commitment. So when we gathered today and received the food in our bowls and then broke out in the blessing chant, it was unrehearsed. We've never chanted that together as a group. But it was powerful because we're training our minds in the same way. It's the power of our pure intention, our perseverance, our gratitude for the offerings received, our vulnerability, our loving kindness, our joy of practicing together. What we received is what we were able to give back. This is the beauty of our lives. This is what was expressed in that moment. And there is the inclination, the movement, the directing towards Nibbana, towards the burning up of defilement. That's the meaning of our gathering here. This is what we are saying in our silence to the world. The gratitude for this teaching of so many centuries. Long may the Dhamma live through our practice and training.